Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. No one ever thinks it's going to happen to them. Even That's people the that thing. catch COVID, even in the in the pros right now, yes. you know, I just called the Hawks versus Hornets game. Four Hornets players were out in health and safety protocols for COVID. Like, it's still a very real thing, but uh, it's not a scary thing because, I, you know, athletes, healthy, probably think we can beat everything and yes. anything. You know, there's that mentality that we're invincible and that we'll get through it. But it's scary because... You're invisible until you're not. Yes. Jason, listen, there is some news (laughs) out of the Northwest. According to Sam Amick and Shams Charania, Damian Lillard has interest in playing. Interest? And playing with Ben Simmons. As many of our listeners know, Ben has yet to play a game for his current team, the Philadelphia 76ers. You know, if the Blazers were to acquire Simmons at the trade deadline, it would likely involve a trade with C.J. McCollum, a first-round draft pick, and probably a young player will probably be thrown in there. Now, we could talk about how the addition of the defensive MVP runner-up to the Blazers could help Dane, but... Honestly, like, is there enough time to fix it there with the Blazers is my question. Should they just start all over, start from scratch, figure it out? Because I feel like the more you add on to the situation is only going to make it a little messier right now. What are your thoughts? I mean, this is all reading tea leaves, right? But like looking at it, now is the time to blow it up. You got a new GM, a brand new coach who was brought in, and Chauncey might be good, obviously has a great pedigree as a player and wants to come in and install a, a more defensive system, which obviously the Blazers need. They are dead last in defense yeah. uh, this season. I believe they were dead last last season. Like, obviously, Dame is among the great scorers in NBA history. If they could only stop anybody, they'd be better. So uh, Chauncey was hired by a GM who is no longer there. That is never a recipe for uh, for a prolonged career with that team. We know one thing about GMs. When they come in, they want to put their own people in. Plus, you've got uh, Dame, apparently, by looking at it, it appears like he's coming to the end of his time there. He's, he's made a good go of it. And, and it just feels like now is the time to blow it up. Now, my only thing is... What does Dame want? Because it feels like, you know, Dame doesn't have a championship. And I think the thing that it appears like he really, really values and he should is his standing as, you know, the greatest trailblazer of all time. You know, like. uh, uh, Yeah, like like a legacy. Like, does he want to build a legacy there or. Exactly. He is a beloved player. I think that's like an understatement. Now. Can he, he's, you know, he's floated stories in the past about him being unhappy. And I think when a player does that and doesn't say anything, you know, they just don't want to poison the the good feelings that he has with that fan base. And I think that that's absolutely natural. So what does, what does Dame want? Because if Dame is like, you know what, it's time to go. 
then they hit, they immediately mash that blow it up button. I think that there's a way to look at this and say, okay, so obviously Dame had issues with Olshi. Olshi is now gone, and the Blazers, uh, you know, went to extreme measures to get this guy out of here when he had millions of dollars still left on his contract. Uh, Dame wanted improvements to the team. Maybe we can do that. It all depends on if Dame wants to stay and if he thinks that they can improve. If Dame wants to leave, man, they got to blow it up. They got to blow it up now. They got to blow it up. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it's just it's interesting because like that is a good point. Like players now, like even when you look at colleges, yeah. a lot of times when you look at UConn, it, it has this stigma of do you want to go to a school where there's already been so many grades or do you want to build your own legacy at a program? And it's, and and so people a lot of times in, in college are starting to choose that path. Like, yeah. in a, I want to build my legacy, even if it means that we may not win right away, or even if it means that we may not win, I want to create something of my own. I want to start my own thing. And so there's not a knock, you know, like to that yeah, point. It's not a, not a knock at all. It's not a knock either way. Yeah. Like you might want to, like, I was one of those players that when I was deciding schools, I knew that there were different schools interested in me. I could choose wherever I wanted to go. I chose UConn, as we know. And the reason I chose UConn is because I knew that they had a proven method. I knew that they get the best out of their players. I knew that they would get the best out of me. And so some, that was what drove me. And I knew that for me, winning is better than anything. So I don't care if I'm an All-American player of the year. If we didn't win, I don't feel good. And so, but all players aren't like that. So to your point, it does matter what a player wants because a player could be yeah. leader in all in points for the franchise there, you know, and lead in all kinds of statistical categories. They can go home at night and be excited. Like, man, I'm going to be the greatest to ever play there, to me, that wouldn't matter. Like, to me, if I go there and get all of these stats <laughs> and all of these records and then we didn't win, I can't handle that. So it's really like, and there, and that's why I said, it's really no knock because sports is a legacy. And the, the thing about sports is that people hate to hear it, but sports is a business. And so when players make business decisions in sports, they start to get labels like selfish and different things like that. And while you play the game, you should never play selfish. But when you're making a decision for your family, for yourself of where to go, where you want to live, a bigger mm -hmm. contracts with another team, that's not selfish. That's a business decision that's best for you Absolutely. and your family. So the, the reason I say that is because I've seen a lot of talk about like guys that, you know, make a decision to leave. I it's a preference. Like, you know, it's a decision. It's a business decision. I think it does matter. What does Dame Lillard, I know that he, he wanted everything there in Portland. He wanted to stay there. He wanted them to make changes. He wanted them to be good. I don't know if he's going to get all of that. So what's the most important thing? Well, I mean, here's the fascinating thing about this. Part of the fascinating thing about this for me is Olshi. I think if you could pinpoint like one uh, fatal flaw of the Olshi regime, and this is aside from the various allegations of like toxic workplace, et cetera, that investigation is ongoing. Uh, it is that Olshi fell in love with his draft picks to the point that, you know, he could have moved CJ McCollum in the past for other players, maybe other players that could have bolstered the, the defense. Um, but he seemed, and by all the reporting I've read, uh, appeared to be so... I got to prove people wrong about CJ McCollum. Mm. I drafted him 10th. Everybody's wrong about him. This guy's an all-star. I think he can play on an all-star level when he's 
playing well and he's healthy. I'm going to prove everybody wrong about him. I'm not going to trade him. I'm not going to do this and that. And uh, I think clearly that was a mistake. Uh, held on too long, could have improved the team uh, using C.J. McCollum as a piece and, and didn't want to do that. So the question is now, does the kind of like GM by committee of uh, Jody Allen, Vice Chair Burt Cold, and others, like do they – do they pull the trigger on a CJ McCollum and stuff for Ben Simmons deal, understanding that there is a world where it still doesn't work out and Dame maybe wants to go? Do you take that risk and say, okay, and listen, it's hard to, you know, uh, CJ makes like $35 million plus a year. So it's not easy. But like, could you, is there a world where you do that to try and placate Dame, give him what he wants? And then if he still wants to leave, then you've just got to deal with it then. That to me is the question. Can they actually make this trade? I don't know. And does he help? Yeah, that's the real question. It's will Ben Simmons, like, because just getting a player of that magnitude it's not good enough to just be a little bit better than you are. So, of course, adding right. that, a good player to a, a team is going to make the team better. But will that team be able to beat pe- other Western Conference teams in the playoffs? Will that team be able to make a late run into the playoffs? Because if they can't get all the way there, adding Ben Simmons, they've made a run with Damian Lillard. You know, yep. Dame Tom shooting from the logo. They've made <laughs> yeah. a run. They've made it exciting before. But... When you add pieces and when you make changes, you want to take a leap. You don't want to just like nudge yourself a little bit further than what you are. So I don't know if they, if adding Ben Simmons will help them compete with the Golden States and the Suns of the world. I, I mean, just don't know. I, I just I, don't see it. But I'm going to say no. That said, <laughs> that said, I mean they hired they hired Chauncey. This team is is dire on defense. Again, they are dead last right now. They were, I believe, either last or bottom of the league last season. Chauncey Billups has recently said, I've never seen a team that needs its bench to inspire its starters. That shit is crazy mm. to me. It's supposed to be the other way around. Uh, obviously, Chauncey would love to see the, the defense improve. The issue is, you know, uh, uh, Dame is 31. Like, Dame has been one of the worst defenders in the league, but not important because he scores at a level that it's not really that big yeah. a deal. But if you're looking with this existing roster that has been last in defense for a while to improve them, you're talking about working around the margins. There's no amount of scheme. This is the team. It kind of is what it is. The habits yeah. are what they are. Is it, I think it's worth a try to bring in defensive players because that's how you get better on defense. You get players who defend and are capable of defending with their length and their athleticism to defend like Ben Simmons. But like, to your point, I don't know that that moves the needle enough, you know, is like it this is worth it. Like, is it worth it for everything that like, cause you got to think once you bring Ben Simmons to town, what's going to happen with the media? What's going to happen with all eyes on you guys? What's going to happen with the pressure of you guys to need to now you added a new piece. Let's see what it did. And all of that to a team that, already has dealt with a lot in a sense of we've been hearing this stuff yeah. about Damian Lillard and these reports. I mean, even now on Twitter right now, there's still tweets going on. Somebody said, when will y'all learn not to report this stuff? If Damian Lillard hasn't said it directly, Damian Lillard quote tweeted it and said, these 
people love drama too much. So this has been drama going on with this team regarding this whole situation. This is not new. So if you add Ben Simmons to the equation, what that that situation, I just don't know if I like what it might do to that situation that's already had a lot of talk. I'll say this. Dame is too smart to ever speak directly on it. (laughs) (laughs) Facts. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time last Wednesday, MLB shut down as its five-year collective bargaining agreement between owners and players expired. This has since become the league's ninth work stoppage, and it's a fight-centered spoiler alert. It's on money. It's (laughs) it's mostly about money, but also about competitive balance. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) It's about about money, but it's also about competitive balance. It's also about the number of games, postseason play, and more. Here with us today to discuss where the league goes next is writer and reporter for Yahoo Sports, Hannah Kaiser. She covers MLB and has written thoroughly on the lockout. Hannah, welcome to Take Line. Thank you for having me. I was just saying it's very cool when people care about baseball and care about labor for a little bit because then I get to feel really important. (laughs) Well, I feel like labor in general, uh, labor issues are certainly – rising to the top of mind of late in the world. So what is happening here? Walk us through uh, what the concerns are from the players and why exactly MLB decided to to lock players out. Yeah, so we are into the first baseball work stoppage in 26 years. You'll hear that mm-hmm. number thrown around a lot. That, take, that would take us back to the 1994 strike that canceled the end of the season, the World Series, the beginning of the 95 season. Um, And that strike is why this is a lockout and not a strike. So since then, we've had, quote unquote, labor peace in baseball. Um, (laughs) But a lot of that is just because the owners have sort of been getting everything they want. They had a couple of really good CBA negotiations where they essentially, sorry to the Players Association, walked all over the union and managed (laughs) to write into the CBA a bunch of stuff that they've sort of since been exploiting. Um, Players are making... Their player salaries, like average player salaries, have gone down recently for like the first time basically ever uh, since they got a union. Um, younger players are getting exploited. Uh, older veterans are getting pushed out, that like middle class. And you keep seeing yeah. these like $300 million yeah. deals getting signed, but like that's the like extreme exception the to the rule. Yeah. 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 So 
things have been getting bad for the players for like two CBAs now. Um, and we kind of saw this work stoppage coming. The reason it's a lockout and not a strike is because the owners learned their lesson in 94 not to let the players control the timing of a work stoppage. So they will never, this has been happening. So other sports know this better. So we've had lockouts in other sports since then because basically management realized you should lock them out in the off season rather than start the season without a CBA because that gives the players the power to go on strike sort of whenever. Well, it's interesting because the, the past two years, the players union and the commissioner's office have had some Public negotiations, yeah. you know, it's been out there about around how to play during the pandemic. And we've talked about even COVID, no one planned for it, So there wasn't a lot of ways to figure out how to do things. But how might those relations, specifically with Rob Manford's negotiating history, affect negotiations this winter? Yeah. So you, you talk about Rob Manford, who actually led the negotiations for a lot of these really successful owners negotiations because he was on the owner management side. It's interesting. He's actually so now that he's the commissioner, he's sort of handed negotiations off. The key names to know are Dan Halem on management side. He's leading their negotiation. Bruce Meyer, who the union hired basically to be the muscle. He's like their lawyer who knows how to stand strong to management ahead of these negotiations. And we got to see those guys sort of clash over those COVID negotiations. And what we learned is that both sides would sort of rather dig their feet in than give an inch. Um, and that was really interesting with the COVID stuff because it really felt like how can you not possibly come to an agreement? Uh, early in like spring, summer 2020, there was this opportunity for baseball to be the only sport, like all the other sports had stopped and they hadn't figured out yeah. when they were going to come back. And people were like, this is such a great opportunity. And they, they couldn't figure out. The most interesting thing that happened in that COVID summer was uh, so they sort of couldn't decide whether or not the players should have to take a pay cut and the, the unions held strong and refused to take a pay cut and like literally left money on the table. So I don't remember what the exact numbers were. Don't cite this, but it was like the owners essentially offered them like whatever, 80 games at maybe like a 15% pay cut. And the players said, no, we're, we won't take a single percentage less but we'd rather play fewer games and make less money overall than play a game at not the full salary. So that's what ended up happening. They, the Manfred, Manfred had the power to institute a season unilaterally, but only mm. if he was going to pay them sort of their actual rate per game. Um, and he decided to do that. He implemented just a 60-game season, so they got less than they would have gotten. But it was a really interesting show of the fact that like this union, this sort of reinvigorated players association will not be pushed around. And the other thing that it really did, which could come into play is like, give the players the like individual players themselves, not the union, a crash course in what a like de facto work stoppage looks like. Mm. They sort of, they learned to sort of trade playing time and potentially even some money for the solidarity of saying, these are, our ideals as a union, a day's work for a day's pay, and we're going to sort of stand by them and stand together. And that's something that's really important because, like, when you think about the management, which is like 30 owners versus yeah. 1,200 players, it's a lot harder to get the players to sort of understand the labor stakes. Um, and going into these CBA negotiations, COVID really provided an opportunity for them to one, see that management would try to screw them over, and two, learn to stand <laughs> together. <laughs> You mentioned the 94-95 the strike, which I think everybody, you know, whenever you see, uh, you know, footage from the time, people talking about it, was, I think, fairly called disastrous. And most of the blame for that at the time, 
you know, you can find you can find outliers for this. But I think most of the blame for that at the time was laid at the feet of the players. They're selfish. They, you know, these guys play a game. They make millions of dollars. Now they want more. Yada, yada, yada. These crybabies, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then, you you know, coming on the heels of that, there was a lot of, oh, this soured me on baseball kind of discussions in various places. You mentioned that the, that the owners have probably learned something from the, from the last uh, work stoppage. What about the players? What about the union? In terms of trying to guide this conversation to a place where it's not, oh, these crybaby millionaires, uh, you know, look at what they want. Because it's, you know, I mean, this is a fight in which they can't even agree on how much money MLB is making and where right. that money is going. You know, like they can't even agree on the on the basic figures. So uh, ha- has the union learned like how to position themselves, how to frame this uh a discussion going forward. Well, they're sort of helped out in the sense that it's a lockout and not a strike this time. Yeah, yeah. You're seeing it in the way that Rob Manfred talks about it. So in the press conference he gave the day after the lockout, he was like, this is a defensive lockout. That is not a real term. That doesn't mean anything. But you can see that sort of that that management was backed into a corner sort of by that 94-95 strike into realizing they had to act first. But in having to act first, that then puts Rob Manfred and the owners in the position of having to defend the work stoppage. I also just think people have learned, hopefully, maybe uh, yeah. to be a little less critical of labor. That was an, the the big difference, though, I think, is that um, so the 94-95 strike was over a salary cap. Baseball's the right. only major sport that I believe still does not have a salary cap. I know it still doesn't have a salary cap. I believe it's the only one. Um, and that that was a huge that was like a that was a simple thing for people to to rally around and to understand. And so obviously people were mad at the players. You talked about that. There were a lot of people who said they would never come back to baseball. Hopefully we don't have another steroid era to bring them back if that happens again. But like <laughs> the the salary cap was an easy thing for people to understand. No salary cap that had been right. the the union's guiding principle since the Marvin Miller days, and it's still their guiding principle, and it's so much a part of. Um, what makes them the most powerful union in sports is also why we get those $300 million Bryce Harper contracts to offset the sort of pushing out of veteran exploitation of younger players. I think the Players Association and the union's biggest issue in these negotiations is figuring out how to how to package and present what it is mm. that, like, what's that line? What is the thing that you will say, like, we would never or we have to get? Like, what is right. the thing? There are certainly issues and it's become increasingly complicated. The way that teams sort of manage to use pre-arb players and then players who are under team control within arbitration and all of that to sort of suppress salaries. But that's a tough message to get across. And that's going to be the union's, like, biggest uphill battle is getting across why it is that they've decided to sort of dig their heels in on this particular CBA negotiation. Well, it's interesting because this negotiation, you know, like there's, there's money is always, (laughs) is always the reasoning. We've, we've talked about this. Money is always what makes things shake either way. Uh, We heard a lot about the minor leagues. Does that come into play at all with this negotiation? Because some of the things that I heard going on with the minor leagues is is pretty wild. Again, I'm not like super into MLB and everything in the workings, but does the minor leagues come into play in negotiations when you're talking this out right now? No, not at all. It's a huge, it's a great question. And it's like, 
far and away, I've heard it from all, like, all these people, right? It's like people, the thing that people always say is like, oh, okay, so they're fighting for better conditions in the minor leagues. It's like, oh, no, absolutely not. No, <laughs> no, no, one, no one is arguing on behalf of the yeah. minor leaguers. That's, but it's interesting because yeah. it's like, that is sort of, that's the whole problem. The minor leaguers yeah. don't have a union and that's why they get paid illegally low amounts of money because uh, they don't have a union. So they, it's, no, they're not part of this conversation. There is an interesting parallel happening, which is that like, um, in recent years, there have been sort of like advocacy groups that have like popped up around minor leaguers, like former minor, minor league players and stuff. And they are not a union. And if you call them a union, they will correct you because they are not a union. But the mere threat of sort of labor organization, your workers acting in solidarity with one of another has worked to uh, achieve some progress. So the big thing going into next year will be that... Um, the league has announced that they're going to pay for minor league housing. This is like a huge win for minor yeah, league yeah, sports. That's they've been like, sleeping you know. in their they've been sleeping in their cars. I mean, yeah. no bullshit. Like literally. And in addition to like not having enough money to pay for housing because they get paid so little, it's actually like a huge logistical hassle. And if you sign a lease somewhere and then you get promoted, then you're like suddenly on the hook oh, for two. Yeah. Like it's a huge problem. Like housing is such a big thing in the minors, and so. It doesn't actually have anything to do with these CBA negotiations, but it is a good like uh, reminder of why it's really important to have some level of organization as the labor, because like the owners will pay you as little as they can, and then they'll wow. only act when it seems like the workers are going to get together and sort of stand strong. Obviously, we've got months until the, the season <laughs> starts, so they've picked their their time frame quite carefully. Where do we go from here? Well, I think that don't expect a lot of news this month. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think they're, they, they, once they've blown past the December 2nd deadline, it's not like they're going to hurry to get shit done in the next couple of weeks. So I think, so spring training, so everyone wants to know, are we going to miss games? That's, that's what you're trying to ask. Are we going to miss yeah. games? Um, and it's hard to tell, obviously. Spring training in particular creates like a weird sort of like a squishy deadline on the other end because no one <laughs> no one really knows exactly how long spring training needs to be. It's supposed to be six weeks in 2020. They only did three weeks of what they called summer camp. Everybody says six weeks spring training too long. We don't need it. But then how long do they need? Do pitchers need to get ramped up? So we're probably not going to have anything happen for the rest of this year. Uh, and then hopefully talks will actually start to pick up again. The the February is our most important month. So the takeaway is February is our most important month. If we're going to have everything happen on time, spring training, full spring training schedule, pitchers and catchers report mid-February, games start the end of the month. That's important because uh, the towns of Arizona and Florida have yeah. missed out on yeah. now three spring trainings in a row if this gets disrupted. So if things are going to happen on time, it'll be that we get a deal in early February if it starts to stretch into the rest of February, then we get into, okay, what's the minimum amount of time we got to give people? They still need to figure out, like, there's still free agents out there. How much time do we need to give everyone? Like, and I suspect that that is actually where this will get decided. Is that like January will wind down and we'll start to get into February. And then we'll start to see the two sides be like, well, you know, we could get be ready to go in two days. So if you want to set the deal and it's like, oh, no, no, we'll, we're ready. <laughs> we're willing to push this a whole other week. Like, I think once we get into sort of who needs time in, in like February and March, then that's where they like get down to brass tacks in terms of like who's actually, who's just posturing it at solidarity and who's really willing to like let the season be on the line. 
She's Hannah Kaiser, writer and reporter for Yahoo Sports. She's made stops with Deadspin, Vice, and Major League Baseball. And you can follow her coverage on Twitter at Hannah R. Kaiser. Hannah, thank you for dropping the knowledge on us (laughs) about what's going on. And thank you for joining Take Line. Thank you guys so much for having me. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Renee, the streak has ended. The Warriors got revenge last week on Friday night, but the Phoenix Suns showed over the entire month of November that they are a force to be reckoned with going on an 18-game winning streak that including wins against the Warriors, Nets, and of course, unfortunately, the Knicks and the Hawks. Uh, However, what do we think about what appears to be an even hotter team than a year ago that that was in the NBA Finals and took two straight games away from the eventual champion Milwaukee Bucks. What do we think about these Phoenix Suns, Renee? Well, they are definitely hot. Their name suits them. The Phoenix Suns, they're hot. I don't even one loss doesn't cool you off. So I want people to know, like the fact that they were streaking at what didn't lose in November is the wildest thing, or maybe didn't lose at home. I don't want to spread fake news. No, yeah, no, no lost November. Entire no lost November. No lost November is a wild thing for an NBA team that plays games every two days. Like, you know, no lost November in the NFL, you might have won four games, and that's yeah. hard in the NFL as well. But a no lost November for an NBA team, that's a lot of games. And one game, I don't think, changes anything. Like, even though they lost that one game, You know, they're still like everyone is struggling with injuries, staying healthy. Uh, Devin Booker didn't play. But I think the Phoenix Suns, look, Chris Paul, when he has teams that aren't necessarily the greatest, he overachieves with those teams. So you mean to tell me you give a leader like Chris Paul the keys to that Maserati over there? (laughs) You got got Monty Williams coaching it up over there. They got a brotherhood over there. They believe it's, that's a scary team. I'm just going to say, like, that's a scary team. They're young. Devin Booker is uh, a superstar. Like, yes. he's already won, but he's even going to be an even bigger one. That's a scary, scary team over there. Yeah, it's, uh, they've just kind of, it's really fun to watch a team just kind of figured out like this. I think you're exactly right. Chris Paul is like a, he is like winning contained in a single like person on steroids i think you yeah. know when he went to okc he lifted them to the playoffs we saw what he did with uh with the clippers all those years uh he man i think the thing that impresses me the most is uh that Monty has somehow managed to balance what is a very young team booker bridges ayton um all playing 
uh, wonderfully well. Bridges has taken a leap this year. Aiton continues uh, the leap that he started to take uh, towards the end of last season. But uh, balancing these young players with with Chris Paul, one of the greatest ever play, but also a player who is like notoriously not the easiest maybe to get along with. And certainly like as a young player, uh, not the easiest to get along with. He is a guy who uh, is notorious for being hard on his teammates. He will let them know when they mess up. And it, listen, obviously helps when you go on an 18-day winning streak and you don't yeah. lose it. You don't mess up very much and you are, you know, top 10 in offense and defense and top three in net rating. Like that really helps. But I think Monty Williams has done a really, really fantastic job coaching this team and getting them all to be on the same page. Because that could be hard. You know, Chris Paul, like, he's worn people out. He's worn players out before, notably. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, too, though, because when you talk about that, you hear people like uh, Charles Barkley and I would say guys that are OGs, they praise Chris Paul on his leadership because he has more of a— what you would call old school style leadership where mm. if there's accountability is served up fresh in your face. Like you gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta eat it. You know, you, there's no running from it. It's sitting right here. They will call you out in front of the group. You will get embarrassed if you're wowing. Like that's, that's old school. That's, that's a type of leadership that we, we see all the time. And, but it's, it's shifting now. And I'm, the reason I say it's shifting is because of you even look at the coaches and how yeah. coaches are coaching. You know, like we watched the Last Dance documentary and there was players that had a lot to say about Michael Jordan. That was kind of normal back then, you know, like getting onto your teammates and not saying it's right because who's to determine what's the right or wrong way to lead, like you know, but there are wrong ways. But I'm just saying like that's how people led for a long extended amount of time. And Chris Paul is, is, is of that fabric. And you can say what you want. He's effective. Look at what happens yeah, to the teams when effective. he leaves. Look at OKC. They just got beat by the largest margin. That was... Ever! I mean, that... I, let's talk about this for a brief second. I think that was 70... What, it was 73 points? 73 points. There's got to be a fine or something. You can't uh, lose by that. I'm sorry, but like, <laughs> I, I understand we're tanking, we're trying to... But you can't put that kind of product out. Come on. That's wild. You can't lose by a historic number. Somebody got to get suspended like the g like sam <gasps> presti gotta lose sam presti gotta lose sam presti gotta lose three games or something come on yes, you got three games yes. listen i'm gonna tell you what my first thought when i saw that was like oh my gosh i would hate to be in film the next day like when you when you get whooped like that and everyone's <laughs> talking about it the whole world knows your social media went viral because they tweeted something okay tweeted something like all right regroup and get back out there next game it was like you just know the world is looking at you. Your coaches are mad. You know, people like Jason are going to be calling for folks to be suspended. And who is the coaches going to take it out on? You, who did it, who deserves it. But I like as a player, when I never got beat by 73, I will say. But at UConn, if you get beat by one point, it feels like 73. Yeah. And it feels very tough. And you don't want to like you don't want to go to film the next day and watch yourself jog down the court or not sprint back on defense. Yeah, so I just, there's a lot there. But back to Phoenix, 
I think that, you know, there's something also to be said about coaching because yeah. we talk a lot about the players and, you know, like you said, the coaches need to get suspended if you put out that bad product. <laughs> Come but on. <laughs> you, but what about Monty Williams and what's yeah. going on over there yeah. at Phoenix? I mean, yes, they have a good team. Yes, they have talent. But we know we've all seen that that doesn't equate to wins. That doesn't equate to a no loss November. We've seen talented teams lose all of November before. So what about Monty? What are your thoughts? He's my coach of the year at this point. I mean, this is a t- I know it's a lot of times it's a team that makes a leap, a dramatic leap that gets that kind of look for coach of the year. But, you know, it started in the bubble with that eight game winning streak run to the finals last season, starting off a, a historic start for them really uh, yeah. thus far into this season. And again, I keep coming back to like, obviously it's easier when you're winning, but Chris Paul is, is, it doesn't matter sometimes if you're right. You were you were talking about like vibes and how it's different now with, you know, with the player empowerment era and players having such a voice yep. in inside teams now. You really got to care how they feel and what they think. And that means you can't just go at guys like Pat Riley used to do back in the day with like a three and a half hour practice and I'm going to scream at you in film and then we're going to run, 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 run till you're, you know, wringing sweat out of your uh, warmups like that's that can't happen anymore no. and so i think again i think he's done a really fantastic job bridging a generation gap between the chris pauls of the world who want to tell the younger players what they think here's you know a, a quote from chris paul recently about deandre eight me and deandre was getting into it like hell to start last season because i'm hard on him and i ain't no loser now again chris paul one of the greatest to ever do it greatest of all time he uh, he instantly elevates your team but there are times you know it doesn't matter how right somebody is and how good they are at at a certain point you would just want to be like okay man i get it i i blew yeah. that rotation i was or i was late stepping up there uh you know i need to recover to the three-point line and when when we're in drop or whatever it is like i get it i know let me just process that on my own i don't i don't need you to tell me <laughs> but you know, whatever it is that is going on in that uh, in that arena, in that locker room, in that film session, uh, Monty is able to balance those things, those different voices, that generation gap. And he's he's it's obviously a fantastic job to this point. What, what do you think of what he's done this year? Yeah, I think coach of the year has he has to be your front runner for coach of the year right now. There's no other question. You're silly if he's not. But it's it's interesting because. I want a lot of people talking about him. Like I mm. want, like I know the Phoenix team has been playing unbelievable and there's been a lot of publicity about how the team is performing. I want more people talking about how Monty Williams has that team performing. Yeah. Like, because I just think that like, this is how sports works. It's the shortest memory you'll ever know to man in the <laughs> yeah. sense of how good you're doing. It doesn't yeah. matter tomorrow. Yeah. So I want a lot of people to start talking about Monty Williams, start talking about what's going on with him so that there's that built up reputation, that built up grace, because hypothetically teams go through stretches, you know, injuries could derail a team yeah. and we could be talking about Monty Williams being one of the best coaches in the NBA this year. And if they don't play good next year, we could be talking about him being gone. So I want more people just under the understanding of how sports work. I want more people talking about Monty. I think that he needs to be recognized as one of those great coaches that, 
you're not going to just fire for one bad season or not. He needs to be getting certain. And look, I know he's a young coach, so I get yes. all of that. But I'm just saying he needs to be getting that talk. Like, this is crazy. Not losing a game in November. That's, like, an, that's insane. That's not and, just play. That's coaching, and, too. And, and here's the thing that I think is unique about Monty, you know, having been around the NBA and covered it for a while. There, he might have the highest Q score of anyone in the NBA. Like, I've people love Monty Williams, yeah. which is you don't really like find that you find guys who are respected you people who are well respected who are maybe feared a little bit you know but people love money the way Definitely. other coaches the way players the way execs talk about money is really it's really unique they they he's able to create a warmth and a bond with his players somehow that is a really unique thing and it's it's really cool to see him succeed on this level Definitely. Renee, here's a, a word of advice to our listeners, pay your employees, uh, especially uh, your your private chefs. I know a lot of uh, Take Line listeners have uh, private chefs. Make sure to pay <laughs> <Jason>. them. <laughs> because uh, if you don't, they might get disgruntled. And if you do something like, say, forge a vaccination card or, or purchase a forged vaccination card, they could possibly dime you out. So don't do that because that is the thing that happened to Antonio Brown uh, of the Tampa Bay Bucks. Uh, Brown is now serving a three-game suspension, but any legal action has not uh, yet been reported. We won't spend time on the on the you know, nuts and bolts legalities of this. But since it's clear COVID is going to be with us for a while, uh, will this situation and a similar situation with Aaron Rodgers from a few weeks ago change how the leagues legislate players who aren't vaccinated and players that break COVID protocol? Are we going to see a new system kind of arise to deal with these things, Renee? I think we have to at this point. It's like, you know, we can all want to wish away COVID. Like I wish we could wish away COVID. Like we all wish that we could go back to normal. We all wish that we could be in arenas. We all wish that we could go to concerts. We all wish. And I think that the leagues are, we're all, and probably, and still are wishing that, okay, at a certain point, COVID will just go away and we don't mm -hmm. have to worry about it. I don't, I don't think that we need to be doing that anymore. I think we need to start getting in some type of protocols just in a sense of, all right, if I get a technical foul, I know what happens. As soon as that ref gives me the T, I'm going to Steph Curry back the T at him, and I know what I'm getting. I'm getting, you know, a fine. I know my second technical is going to be a bigger fine. I know if you get, you know, I know what's going to happen to me. I know if I get a flagrant. I've never gotten that one before. I've only gotten three technicals my whole life, by the way. I'm not that type of person. But if I got <laughs> a flagrant, I knew what was going to happen then. Yeah. I don't think that people know what's going to happen to them when they break COVID protocol. And now, of course, of course, of course, we know that people should not break COVID protocol, of course. But we also know that the same way flagrants aren't there for people to just go out and get flagrants, it, it's going to happen because people are going to do what people want to do. What I think the these all the leagues have to do is figure out a baseline norm that's just everyone knows it whether you're Aaron Rodgers or whether you're Antonio Brown and his teammates, you know that if you create a fake vaccination card, blank will happen. And you know that if you aren't wearing your mask, blank will happen. Like it just needs to be set. 
so that there's an understanding because as much as we wish, COVID is probably going to be here in 2023 as well. So it's not like we can't, ju- we can keep just flying by our, our britches as our country yeah. folks would say. We have to like figure out, Grant you, it would be great if everybody just followed the rules and took care of each other. But different people have different reasoning and opinions and that's allowed in the world. But we need to figure out what's the protocols. I think more than that, too, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we, we're used to various infractions or suspensions, et cetera, within certain leagues resulting in certain set fines that we're just familiar with. COVID is obviously still, even though we've been doing this for two years, the response to this uh, within leagues is still pretty new. And I think the thing that makes it complicated is like, it's also a public health issue that the government is involved in. So the NFL and the NFLPA, the Players Association, negotiated the length of Brown's suspension. The other part of this is, you know, uh, you forge a federal document that's technically a federal crime, punishable by up to five years in prison. What exactly is the government response to this? What is that portion of it? Because really, that's the thing we don't know about. I think that it's, you know, it's interesting. We're all kind of, to your point, acting like this is going to go away slash it doesn't quite matter. Like uh, uh, Chef uh, Stephen Ruiz, who Antonio Brown stiffed, is the one who dimed out. Uh, Brown saying, listen, I got the I got the card for him. His girlfriend was trying to get it. Then I ended up being able to get the card for him. You know, if people actually were scared of the laws regarding forging these documents, I'm pretty sure as much as Chef Steven Ruiz wants to get paid and wants revenge for not getting paid, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't just come out and say, I committed a crime. Right. Yes, Antonio Brown asked me to do it, but I did do it for him. Like, what are those penalties going to be you know what what are those things like again like if this was for instance if this was like steroids or some kind of illicit drugs chef steven ruiz is not going to be out here being like i helped smuggle uh cocaine into the country for it he's not going to say that because he knows what the penalties so what are the penalties are those penalties going to be meted out in a way that is fair and uh, again to your point like when do we get to a place where people understand what those penalties are? Because I think to a certain extent, we still act like this isn't real. Like, yeah. no, we haven't we haven't gotten to a place where a notable player has gotten sick, like really sick yet. I think that would be the thing that would fast forward this into, oh, my God, this is real. Maybe we should take it seriously, you know, as despite all the people that have gotten sick and that have died and even the family members of players that have gotten sick in the diet and even the players who have gotten pretty sick. We haven't yet gotten to a point where it's like a name household name player has gotten like really, really sick and, and uh, in a life threatening way. I think that's the thing that would make this whole conversation jump to the level of uh, seriousness that it needs to be at. And, and, And to that point, Jason, I mean, you know, in the WNBA, we had Asia Durr who had long form COVID, but mm-hmm. she's not necessarily a household name. But to that point, it's interesting because, you know, teams are very close. Like yeah. players are close to teams. And, and I think that a lot of players, while they're doing this, you, they're not thinking that they're going to hurt any of their teammates because right, they're course. all thinking. No, I mean, to your point, like yeah. I, it. Like, you're right. They're not. But players aren't even thinking that they're going to harm somebody else. They're probably thinking, 
oh, I'm probably taking care of myself. I'm wearing yeah. my mask. I don't need to take all those tests. And that's, that's, that's the tough part because until we have it happen, like with somebody that everyone knows that it's like, yeah, he got exposed through his teammate. Like until that scenario happens, it doesn't feel real enough because, you know, we do know that there's been a lot of deaths. We do know that there's been a lot of like people hospitalized, serious Ill- injuries, illnesses yeah. because of COVID. But no one ever thinks it's going to happen to them. Even That's people that thing. catch COVID, even in the in the pros right now, yes. you know, I just called the Hawks versus Hornets game for... Hornets players were out in health and safety protocols for COVID. Like, it's still a very real thing, but uh, it's not a scary thing because, I, you know, athletes, healthy, probably think we can beat everything and yes. anything. You know, there's that mentality that we're invincible and that we'll get through it. But it's scary because you're invincible until you're not. I mean, it. It's part human nature. Part of human nature is you don't believe it'll happen to you, right? Yep. And then the other part of it is, I think you're exactly right, which is like professional sports kind of doesn't work without players, everyone involved feeling like they are special, feeling yep. like they are on some level different than everybody else and that this bad stuff is not going to happen to them. You can watch any professional sports league, doesn't matter what it is. And the reason there's that level of intensity is because those players feel like they are the best of the best of the best, that they are special, that they are destined by fate to be this good. And part of that is feeling like I have a million doctors and trainers looking at my body all the time. I'm taking this, that, and the other thing to keep my body at tip-top shape. It is a temple. I'm fine. I eat healthy. I, I eat exercise. Healthy. Yeah. I take care. I'll I'll be able to recover. I'll be There's, okay. And you and know? then when you talk about to your point too, sports, everything in sports is confidence. Like the best shooters in the world are the most confident people you'll meet because you got to be really confident to think that you're going to make every shot you shoot. Like I mean, that's just like when I like when I shoot the ball, I think it's going in every single time. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you gotta think that because the to. moment, the moment you don't think that is not going in, and this, and it works the same for all of sports. The moment you think you're not good enough, you are not good enough. Like people will smell it, they'll sniff it out on you. I will look in your eyes, and I'm like, oh wow, she don't feel like she, you know, like they smell blood in the water is the term. So the same things that make athletes great is also our weakness. <laughs> I'll say that. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube yep. for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which comes out every Friday. Check it out. Goodbye. Take Line is a crooked media production. The show is produced by Carlton Gillespie and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Our contributing producers are Caroline Reston, Elijah Cohn, and Jason Gallagher. Engineering, editing, and sound design by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. 
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.